Ralph Davis said, your help is in the name of the Lord, not in the name of your favorite Christian hero. Your help, Christian, is in the name of the Lord, in the name of Jesus, not in the name of your favorite Christian hero, your favorite author, commentator, scholar, pastor, preacher. And that's sort of what was taking place in the church in Corinth. The Corinthians were known for picking their favorite Christian heroes, Paul, Apollos, Peter. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 if you want to. And the remnants of these Christian hero cliques were still there in this church. And so what happens when one of these Christian heroes changes his plans and doesn't show up after he told them he would show up? Here's what happens. People get their feathers ruffled. And so Paul will let the Corinthian church know that their trust needs to be placed in God not in Paul, and not in any so-called Christian hero. I'm sure the evangelical church in America could use this reminder too. I digress. Let's look at 2 Corinthians. So turn to chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians while I tell you what our big idea is today, which I also stole from Ralph Davis. God is always faithful, but He's not always predictable. God is always faithful, but he's not always predictable, is he? And so Paul is going to try to get this point across to the Corinthians. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Remember the context from several weeks ago. Paul was planning on a visit to the Corinthian church. He wanted to visit them, go on his way, come back and visit them again. He changed his plans, and now they're hurt. And they don't trust him, and they think he's a liar, and they're doubting his apostleship. And that's what Paul is getting at here in verse 17. He will defend himself against these accusations. So, 2 Corinthians 1.17, hear the word of the Lord. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So Paul changed his plans, changed his mind. He never made it to Corinth because he didn't want it to be a painful visit. And this caused the Corinthians to doubt his love for them, even doubt his apostleship. So Paul tells them that he was not being wishy-washy when he did this. He doesn't make his plans according to the flesh, the worldly way, where he says one thing, but he really means something else. Paul's not a schizophrenic. He doesn't say, yes, I'll be there next week. No, actually, I won't. Wait a minute. I will be there. On second thought, I'm not coming now. Yes, yes. No, no. He wants the Corinthians to know that he has actually been like Jesus, in that he hasn't lied to them. He hasn't been 
fickle because Jesus isn't fickle. And Paul says, I'm like Jesus. I'm not being fickle with you. He's saying, I spared you by not coming to visit you. In fact, the whole reason that Paul did not visit the Corinthian church, as we'll see in the coming verses, was in fact to spare them. He didn't want it to be a painful visit when he visited them. He didn't want to have to bring the hammer down. He stayed away to spare them of some church discipline that should have happened. But they misunderstood Paul and they were hurt by his decision. And so understand this, Grace. You can't necessarily trust your own sense of hurt. You can't necessarily trust your own sense, your own understanding of when you're hurt. Now, there are times when people do hurt us and they break our hearts and that's real, intangible, and our nerves are on fire, our heart is breaking. There, there are those times, yes, but there are also times when people do things and we assume their motives and therefore we get hurt by that. And we may not be right. So you can't necessarily always trust your own sense or your own understanding of your hurt. You might feel justified in your hurt, but you may be dead wrong. That's the Corinthians here. They couldn't trust their own sense of hurt, but they could trust God. The Corinthians were trusting in their own sense of hurt, their own understanding of their hurt, not realizing that Paul stayed away and didn't visit them because he didn't want to hurt them. He didn't want it to be a painful visit. He wanted them to rejoice when they saw each other. Instead of putting so much stock in how they perceived themselves to be hurt, that person did this, well, I know, I'm hurt. Instead of doing that, they should have trusted God with the situation. And so by staying away, Paul is being like Jesus and sparing them. He sent them a tearful letter we'll read about in the next few verses as we go along. A tearful letter full of mercy, hoping that it would soften their hearts. And that's what mercy does. Mercy does that. Mercy and gentleness have a way of softening those who have been hardened by sin. And that's one reason Paul started this letter off by speaking of the Father of mercies. Because mercy softens. God's kindness does what? It leads us to repentance. Paul knows that we won't trust God if we secretly despise Him. That's why he began talking about God as the Father of mercies. He knows that the Corinthians will not trust God if deep down inside they secretly despise Him. You see, we trust what we are drawn to. And that's why Paul painted a picture of God as the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. It's why he started his letter this way, to draw the Corinthians' hearts out to trust God's promises anew. So when life changes and doesn't turn out the way that you expected like the Corinthian church here they expected Paul to visit twice and he changed his plans and they got hurt by that when life changes and doesn't turn out the way that you expected 
God has given you promises in his word to help calm your heart, to talk you down off of the ledge, to keep you from freaking out, to recalibrate you, to settle you, to help you to relax, to enable you to sleep at night and not toss and turn. Put simply, God gave you promises so that you can trust him. And when you trust him, guess what? He is glorified. And isn't that the point of life, that God be glorified? The glory of God is the point of our life. We were made to glorify and enjoy God forever. That's the whole point of the gospel, the glory of God. And he is glorified when you trust his promises. So if the Corinthians can begin changing their thinking, and if they can begin to read the Bible, which the, what they had was the Old Testament at the time, if they can begin to change their thinking and read the Bible as promise, as a book of promises fulfilled by Jesus, then every page would be a fresh wave of hope from God. It would breathe new life into them because they would see all of these promises being fulfilled in Jesus so that everything is yes in him. It, they would begin to see that their relationship with God was not, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Yes, no, yes, no. It would be yes, 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 and the same is true for us. When you begin to read the Bible and you begin to read God's word as a book of promise, then you begin to see that God's promises are tailor-made for your heart. His promises resonate with our hearts. That's how God designed them. It's how he designed his promises because he made us, he knows us. So God has made all of these promises to us in the Bible and in the gospel and they resonate with our hearts, don't they? Like his mercies are new every morning. That's a promise. Doesn't that resonate with your heart? It did with mine this morning. Promises like, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Doesn't that resonate with your heart, Christian? God's promises match and connect with our hearts perfectly. They sync up. And when you begin to see that, it opens the door for you to begin to pray the promises of God. God's promises then become a pattern for us to use in prayer, in communication, in communion with him. Now, think about that. How loving of God, how kind of God, how generous of him. His promises are made for our hurts, made for our wounds, made for all of the cares that consume us. They resonate and click with our hearts. And so they can become a pattern that we use in prayer. So we're not just praying prayers that don't resonate with us, that we're not really interested in. His promises turned into prayers are in tune with our hearts. I mean, how awesome is that? His promises resonate, they're in tune with us, and so we can turn them into prayers. God doesn't promise us things that we don't want. 
He doesn't promise us things that our hearts don't long for. For instance, if God promised me a truckload of mayonnaise, I would not be thrilled at all. But if he promised me a truckload of brisket, I'd be thrilled. I'd say, yes, thank you, Lord. Why? Because brisket resonates with my heart and with my stomach. And I ate a lot of brisket the last three weeks on vacation. Our family loves brisket so much. I was at my parents' house in Oklahoma. My older brother drove up a brisket from Dallas four and a half hours to our house from this truck, uh, food truck guy that he knows because the guy makes a killer brisket. He drove that brisket four and a half hours up to us so we could eat it. Brisket resonates with my heart and my stomach. So when Paul says here that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus, they cause your heart to say yes when you hear them. They click with your heart's desire. And since we all struggle with prayer, what an invitation this is to prayer. His promises lure us out of lethargy to prayer because his promises resonate with our hearts, therefore making prayer a little bit easier. We pray about what's on our hearts. We pray about what we want. We pray about what we desire. And since his promises therefore resonate with our hearts, therefore prayer becomes manageable, doesn't it? That's encouraging. Because if you struggle to pray, find a promise in God's word. And pray it, because it will resonate with your heart, and it's much easier to pray about what resonates with your heart, right? So God makes these promises to us that resonate with our hearts, and then that makes prayer more manageable. You know what? That kindness of God, that he makes these prayers that you know, get our heart, get us excited, that he makes these promises that get our hearts excited, that kindness of God ought to make you want to utter your amen to God for his glory, as Paul says here in this passage. It ought to restore your awe. It ought to restore your wonder at the kindness of God in giving you promises like this to sustain you and to talk you down off the ledge of life. That's his kindness. It ought to make you want to stand up and sing the doxology. You know the doxology, don't you? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. God's promises ought to lure the doxology out of you. By the way, do you know what doxology means? It comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory, and logos, which means word. And so it's a word of glory, a a word of praise, a word of adoration to God. And that's what Paul is getting at here in verse 20. When we come to grips with how concrete and secure God's promises are to us, then we'll sing the doxology. We'll utter our amen to God For his glory. And when we begin to stick our necks out and trust God and trust his promises and really believe that he really is faithful, that he's not fickle, he loves me, he loves me not, yes, no, yes, no. 
when we really believe that he is faithful, as Paul tells us here in verse 18, and that God is not pulling our leg, it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything about the Christian life. And with that understanding in mind, it changes how we respond to life. It changes how we respond to the changes that come in life. Changes that we don't ask for. Situations that we don't ask for that come into our life. This changes how we view those events. We begin to trust a faithful God who is directing every step of our life. So when things don't go our way, like the church at Corinth, things didn't go the way they wanted. Paul, you're going to come visit, you're going to leave, and you're going to come back again. Those plans changed. When things don't go our way, like the Corinthians, or our plans get changed, we learn to trust again, don't we? We learn to wait as we pray His promises. And that's one way that God builds this waiting into our lives. It's where we learn to trust Him again. It's where we have to see with the eyes of faith. It's where we learn to wait on the Lord. And that's what happened with the Corinthian church. Paul changed his plans, so that meant their plans got changed. And they had to wait and adjust to what was happening in their life. But even as they waited, they could still trust God. That's what Paul is reinforcing here. God can always be trusted. He's faithful, even when things don't go the way that we plan. So perhaps you need this reminder today. God is always faithful, but he's not always predictable. You can't predict him, can you? Sometimes God keeps us waiting in order to deepen us. We wouldn't choose that, would we? I want to be deepened by Bible prayer, by Bible and prayer, and, and, and the, the, the means of grace here at church. I don't want to deepen through waiting. I don't want to deepen through trial and hardship and suffering. I want the easy way out. But God keeps us waiting sometimes in order to deepen us, to grow us, to mature us. And so one of the hardest things to do as a Christian is to wait, isn't it? I don't know about y'all, but it is so hard for me to wait on the Lord. I get impatient, I get antsy, I get squirmy and fidgety. I assume you're the same way. We hate waiting. It's excruciating. It's painful. Look at what's happening with COVID, right? We're all antsy, we're all fidgety, we're all squirmy. We all want everything to change right now. Look at us. We don't like waiting. God has our world in this season right now for some reason, for him to be glorified, his kingdom to grow, the gospel to go forth, us to deepen, lots of reasons, and there are probably 10,000 other reasons that God has what's happening in our world right now happening. He knows. He's unpredictable. But we get antsy when we have to wait on the Lord. We get fidgety. It's painful. It's excruciating. And sometimes we get so antsy, so fidgety, that we jump and we make a move and we make a decision and we end up regretting it. As I mentioned several weeks ago, wishing you had waited on God is harder than waiting on God. Waiting is hard. And in case you haven't figured this out yet about Jesus, he is in no rush. He drags his feet sometimes. 
Not because he's lazy. No, Jesus just often has his people wait. He's faithful, but he's also perplexing at times. And we have to come to grips with that or life will be miserable. Jesus is faithful and yet he is also perplexing at times. He does things that we don't understand. He still works while we wait, but he often makes us wait, doesn't he? And what do we do while we wait? Like the Corinthians here, we cling to his promises. We trust him again because he's faithful. Waiting just might be the hardest thing for a Christian to do. And it's the hardest part of suffering and undergoing difficult, changing seasons of life. That's the hardest part about any suffering. It's waiting. And it's hard because it's located in the dimension of time. It's located within minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years on end. Suffering and sorrow live in time. That's where they live. Suffering, hardship, and heartache live in clocks and in calendars. That's where we learn to wait on this unpredictable God that we love and serve. And sometimes God's promises come true in less than ideal circumstances and situations. Often they do. Well, what then? No need to panic because God's promises are very comfortable in very uncomfortable situations. We don't like awkward situations, do we? We don't like awkward relationship situations, but God's promises don't mind plopping down into those situations and just doing their thing. God's promises are very comfortable in very uncomfortable situations. They often come true, and you often see their fulfillment in less than ideal circumstances. That's the playground that God's promises love to play on. Suffering, hardships. God's promises will prove true in spite of all efforts by human beings to sabotage it. No matter what's happening in the world right now, whatever you think the government's doing, if they're coming against the church or not, it doesn't matter because God's promises will prove true whether or not the government is or isn't attacking the church right now. If they are, guess what? God's promises are going to come true no matter what. So what hope that should give us, right? It gives us hope that even when we cling to God's promises and our situations don't turn out the way that we envisioned or the way we hoped or the way we thought, nothing can thwart God's promises at all. Listen, there will be times when you find yourselves in situations where you cling to a promise in God's word and things pan out in a way that you find desirable in a way that you want, in in a way that you're praying for, hoping for, wishing for. And when that happens, don't forget to utter your amen to God for his glory. Don't forget that. On our trip to Texas flying back, American Airlines canceled one of our kids' tickets. There's a long story behind, they wouldn't have time to get into it, but we're on the, they're like, well, we don't have a ticket for him. Well, we're, we can't leave a kid in the airport. So we're on the, the phone with American Airlines, Heather's on there talking to them, and I'm just telling the kids, pray, pray, pray. And then they finally come back after trying to convince us that we needed to buy a ticket, so on and so forth. They finally say, okay, we'll give you your ticket back. It was ours never to be taken away with to begin with. But anyway, I told the kids, don't forget to thank 
Jesus for answering our prayers. So, when you find yourselves in situations where you cling to God's promises, because I was claiming Romans 8.28. I was like, I don't know how this is going to work out to God's glory. I was claiming and believing that promise, and it worked out. So when you find yourselves in situations where you're clinging to a promise and things work out in a way that you're praying, hoping, wishing, desiring, don't forget to stop and utter your amen to God for his glory. But there will also be times in your life when you cling to a promise in God's word and things don't pan out the way that you desire. But you can still have hope because nothing can stop God's promises. In some way and in some time, God will answer, and in the end, you will be able to say that God is faithful and that his promises are true. He gives us promises, and we have to wait with expectation, not explanations. We want explanations, don't we? But we're called to wait with expectation. We don't wait biting our nails, hoping that he comes through. We don't wait pacing the floor, We wait in faith because we know what kind of God he is. We know him. As Paul reminds us in verse 18, he is faithful. Listen, God is not toying with us when he has us wait. He's not playing games with us. He's not getting some kind of weird kick out of us, of watching us squirm while we wait. That's not who he is. We have to trust him. So here are some questions that I think the Corinthians needed to wrestle with as their plans were changed and that we have to wrestle with when things change in our life and we have to wait on the Lord. Are we willing to go at God's pace, not ours? Are we willing to go by His calendar, not ours? Are we willing to trust God with everything? Are we willing to leave every detail with Jesus down to the smallest of details and trust That he knows what he's doing? That's what the Corinthian church needed to do. They needed to learn that faith is comfortable with God's nose. Not his nose like on his face, but his no, this is not my plan. Faith has to be comfortable with God saying, no, this is not my plan. And so God may say no to your prayer But that does not mean that all of his promises are no longer yes in Jesus. God may say no to your plans and dreams and wishes, but the yes of his promises remains. And so faith waits. And while it waits, it keeps rubbing God's promises into its pores. That's how faith stays alive. That's what the Corinthians should have done. Instead of focusing on God's promises, they focus on how Paul supposedly didn't keep his promises. They didn't like waiting for Paul to show up. And so they got squirmy and fidgety. But God gives us these promises, and they are big and grand. And so understand this, Grace. God doesn't water his promises down to what looks conceivable to us. He doesn't whittle them down to make them easier to believe or to make them manageable. I mean, why would he do that? Jesus makes big, seemingly too good to be true, wild and crazy, out of this world promises to us that go against what we think is the norm. And he makes these promises that are so outrageous. They're so outrageous that sometimes we have trouble believing them, don't we? 
but they're true and they're real. Listen, God is not afraid to make promises that seem hard to believe. And if God, and God doesn't give us explanations. We want that. I want that. I want God to explain everything to me that he's doing in my life. We want him to explain everything to us, don't we? To tell us exactly what is happening in our lives and why it is happening. We want explanations like kids want candy, right? Gimme, gimme, gimme explanations. But Jesus doesn't give us explanations. Instead, he gives us promises. He gives us promises to live on, to feast on. Listen, we would not be able to survive on explanations. We would grow emaciated and weak. Explanations are not spiritually nourishing, but God's promises are. If God gave us explanations, you know what? Here's what would happen. We would quit pursuing God, wouldn't we? We would quit pursuing him. We'd say, well, I know what he's doing. I know the end of this. And so we just sit back. We'd get lazy. Let me ask you this morning, what promise do you need to believe today in God's word? What promise do you need to rub into your pores? We were made to live on his promises, not explanations and not data. God's promises will sustain you even when you have no idea why what is happening is happening in your life. It's why we're a people of faith, a people who trust. That's why Paul says what he says in verse 20. Look at verse 20 again. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. God is faithful to his promises, and that's why we can utter our amen to God for his glory. Because when we are trusting God and trusting his promises, who gets the glory? He does. And Jesus knows what is best for us. He knows what is best for you. You don't. He knows what is best, and so you can trust him right now, today, no matter what you're going through right now. God is always faithful, but he's not always predictable. And that means he's not boring either, right? You have to appreciate that about Jesus. He isn't boring. He doesn't use the same playbook for every single one of us in all of our lives. When things don't go the way we want, like the Corinthians here, we can either become, one, cynical, or two, hopeful, Those are the two options we have when God is not answering or moving the way that we wish. You can be cynical or hopeful when you encounter the unpredictable God. When God's doing something that you don't understand, you will either be cynical or hopeful. Your choice. I'd recommend the latter. In his book on prayer, Paul Miller describes what it looks like when we are disappointed with how life has turned out, like the Corinthian church in this passage today. And usually, when we're disappointed with other people, and we're disappointed with how life has turned out, deep down, we're really disappointed with God, right? I know I'm often this way. People disappoint me. People let me down. Situations occur that I don't want. Plans change. And just like the Corinthians here, if you dig deeper, you'll find that I'm probably really disappointed with God. 
And I think that's why Paul describes God here this way as faithful. Because he knows that deep down the Corinthians are really disappointed with God. So here's what it looks like when we are disappointed and when we get hurt, whether that's valid or not. And we're disappointed with how life has turned out. We have two choices, two ways to live. Here's what Paul Miller says. And now I want you also to think about this with what's happening in the church today and with the coronavirus and what's happening in the world. See how relatable these words are. He says this, when we don't receive what we pray for or desire, it doesn't mean that God isn't acting on our behalf. Rather, he's weaving his story. When God seems silent and our prayers go unanswered, the overwhelming temptation is to leave the story to walk out of the desert and attempt to create a normal life. But when we persist in a spiritual vacuum, when we hang in there during ambiguity, we get to know God. In fact, that is how intimacy grows in all close relationships. If we don't get passionate with God in the face of disappointment... Then cynicism slips in and our hearts begin to harden. We begin a living death. This chart summarizes two approaches to a praying life. So here's the chart. If we begin thinking that God's not writing a story in our life, we'll become bitter, angry, aimless, cynical, controlling, hopeless, thankless. And we'll start blaming other people and blaming God. But if we believe that God is writing his story and that our little tiny story is a part of his big story, then we'll learn to wait on him. We'll start watching, start wondering what God's going to do, start praying, start submitting to his word and to authority. And we'll start hoping and we'll be thankful. And we might even do something crazy like repent of our sins. So we have two options. The Corinthians had two options here. Two ways to live when we're disappointed with God, disappointed with life, when it doesn't seem, he doesn't seem to be answering our prayers, or when people let us down, our plans get changed. Sometimes we begin to imagine that Jesus doesn't care or that he's not involved. And when we start living like God is not writing the story of our lives, that's the list we fall into. When we live like God is not writing our story, we become bitter, angry, aimless, cynical, controlling, hopeless, thankless, and we blame God and others. And that is the Corinthian church right here in chapter 1. That's option 1. Or we could go the route that the Apostle Paul is suggesting. We live a life of faith, a life of trust. We begin to live as if God is writing the story of our life. And if we do this, you know what? We'll learn to enjoy life as we wait on God. How about that crazy idea? You're waiting on God, you're praying, it's taken months, maybe years. Can you imagine learning to enjoy life, enjoy God while you're waiting through a long season? We'll learn to enjoy life as we wait on God and we'll begin to see where and how God is working in our life. We'll start seeing it. 
and we'll begin to live with a sense of wonder and excitement and anticipation. Like, I wonder what God is up to. I have no idea. He's so unpredictable. I don't know what he's up to. This is not how I planned it. This is not how I wanted my life to go. This is not how I wanted things to go. But because God is faithful, I'm excited to see what he's going to do in this situation. He's going to knock my socks off, I bet. Option two, that's option two. Option two is the way of Jesus. It's the way of grace. It's believing Paul's words in verse 18 where he says, as surely as God is faithful. We learn to wait in faith and we watch and we wonder and we pray and we submit to God and we're full of hope and we start giving thanks to him. And when you begin to trust that God is writing the story of your life, no matter what happens, then you'll begin uttering your amen to God for his glory. And you might even begin to repent. Imagine that. You just might start repenting of your sins and your crabby attitude. You'll begin resting in how Jesus is writing the story of your life and how your little story is a part of the greatest story of all the gospel. You have a chapter, your life, your story is a chapter in God's book, the great story of redemption, that God sent his son Jesus to save sinners. And when you begin to believe that God really is writing your story and that your story is one little chapter in this gigantic book where God saves sinners, then you'll be full of hope. That's how Paul got the perspective that he has here. And so all of these words that Paul uses here in these verses, they're really theological statements. That's what he's getting at here. He's trying to recalibrate the Corinthians. He uses words like yes and promises and in him and amen these little words tell us about what kind of God we are dealing with. They're telling us about his character, who Jesus is, that he's faithful. They're little words that should cause us to worship. These very simple yet deep theological words in these verses should cause us to worship. I mean, they are simple words in English, aren't they? Yes, promises, in him, amen. But they're jam-packed with theology. They're, they're pregnant with theology. And theology always does its best work when it leads us to worship. Theology always does its best work. Whether you're reading your Bible, doing a Bible study with a small group, reading a book, theology always does its best work when it leads you to worship. Theology should always restore our awe of God, being in wonder that he would save sinners like us through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign of his Son Theology should always make us sing and utter our amen to God for his glory. Theology, church on Sunday morning should restore our awe. It should cause us to utter our amen to God for his glory. So let's do that now. And just in case you need this reminder before we sing, here you go. God is always faithful, but he's not always predictable. I think we can worship a God like that, right? 
we can worship a God who is always faithful, even though he's not always predictable. He's faithful, Grace. He's not yes, no, yes, no, but yes. In Christ, he is yes. All the promises of God are yes. It's not he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. It's I love you. It's he loves me, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. You can worship a God like that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are faithful. And I thank you that you're not boring. I thank you that you're not predictable. I thank you that you do wild and crazy things like put us in situations that we wouldn't choose and you allow plans to change so that you can deepen us. Because I wouldn't choose that route, Father. I want it easy. I want to be changed. I want to be transformed. But I want to take a sanctification pill to do it, Lord. And yet you and your infinite wisdom and your unpredictable ways take us through hardships and change plans to deepen us, to grow us, to mature us. And that's what we want. That's what we want. We want to be changed. We want to be transformed. We want to mature and grow. Don't let us remain weak and emaciated. Don't let us get bitter and cynical. May we be a church full of expectation and anticipation about what you're doing through us as a church and what you're doing through each of our individual lives, Lord. May we have hope and may we believe that you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.